Hello, my name is John James and I am a writing campaigner for male victims of female perpetrated domestic violence and an advocate for men's mental health. This week on FTD Talk, I talked to Kirby Lewis about his breast cancer and about the other cancer that he had. Um, we talk about how much more difficult it was because he was a man having breast cancer, how people don't understand, how the medical profession don't understand. Um, we also talk about recovery and Kirby is a very, very funny man and his positive mental attitude is amazing. And he'll talk to you about how to emotionally and psychologically uh, deal with having cancer. Um, I so enjoyed talking to Kirby and I think you'll really enjoy listening to him. So educate yourself by listening. Um, and it's very, very interesting too. So I think you'll really enjoy it. Before you go, don't forget to press that like button, smash that subscribe button. The bigger the channel gets, the more people I can help. You take care now. Take care of each other. Peace. Okay, Kirby, welcome to FTD Talk. And um, before we uh, get into the the real subject, could you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself before the cancer? Um, sure. Uh, <clears throat> I was, uh, uh, I, I don't want to say a starving artist, but my wife would probably <laughs> agree with that definition. Uh, but uh, I, I was, uh, you know, pretty successful as a designer and an artist. Um, you know, when you, when you do artwork, um, <clears throat> you kind of get into the mode that you're a prostitute for, uh, for anything <laughs> that comes down the road. So you, you do, you know, little doodles and drawings for anybody that asks and are willing to pay 10 or 15 or $20. And then you do, uh, oil paintings and, um, and sculptures for uh, those businesses and uh, commercial uses uh, that are willing to pay a lot more. And I, I benefited from both. And I've had a, a really, uh, I'm very flattered and very honored to have had the career in the art world that I've had. Um, prior to that, I mean, I've always been an artist from the time I was five years old. Um, I don't know how much time your program allows for John. But, but thank you very much for having me here today. I really do appreciate it. And I, I can tell you a story about my passion for art. And I bring this up because I think passion in life is a vital element to living uh, a good life. And uh, so when I was five years old, I used to like to draw um, cartoon characters, Aquaman and Spider-Man and Batman and things like that. And my parents lived up on a hillside. Uh, we live in West Virginia. So uh, you, you either live on the top of the hill or the bottom of the hill in West Virginia. At least that's the old joke, right? And, um, and so we were fortunate. We lived at the top of the hill and uh, out in the country. Uh, there were very few neighbors and we had no foot traffic whatsoever. And I decided one day that I was going to have an art show on the side porch of my, my parents' home. Um, needless to say, at five years old, I didn't have uh, any kind of an advertising budget or anything like that. So my grandmother, 
who lived about two miles away, she called me up as she always did. And she said, what are you into today? And I said, well, I'm having an art show, but so far I, I, I don't have anybody here yet, but they'll come. And uh, it wasn't more than 15 or 20 minutes later. And she and her neighbor lady showed up and I had a complete sellout of my first art show mm -hmm. at five years old. So I, I like to tell that uh, because it kind of set the tone um, for me as an artist. Um, it impassioned me and empowered me. And, uh, and I just grew as an artist from there. And uh, since that time, I've really never had another art show. I mean, after all, when you have uh, your, your first one such a success, why have a second one? <laughs> and what was your health like before, before the cancer? Um, <clears throat> I had had a couple of heart attacks. I'm a big guy. Um, I, I had been in the Navy, um, had a stint in the, in the United States Navy. And, um, and when I got out of that, uh, I went to work for the federal government. And during that time, it was a very stressful uh, position uh, with a, I won't name the, the organization, but I'll give you the initials, the IRS. Uh, so um, now, I, you know, it was, uh, but it was a stressful position. And, uh, and I think that that probably attributed to uh, my heart attack. Um, but uh, aside from that, I was in fairly good health. Um, you know, uh, I stayed busy, active, uh, always guard things of this sort. So aside from, uh, from the heart issue, um, but I, you know, I mean, that was, uh, like I said, probably brought on from stress, although I am a big guy. Uh, and then also there was a hereditary aspect of that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, aside from that, you know, relatively good health. Um, I guess uh, people with heart issues can have good health. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you actually uh, discover that you had uh, breast cancer or suspect that you had? Well, this is, um, you know, my wife and I've been married now uh, this year. It'll be 34 years. And I'll tell you, or 35 years in August, rather. And I, I will tell you this, that you don't get through any successful marriage for a long period of time without injecting a little humor. So bear that in mind as I tell you this. Um, I had had a very persistent cough. Uh, this was in the uh, March of 2012. I had had a very persistent cough and uh, congestion in my chest. And uh, I just attributed it to allergies. And, um, you know, that's kind of what I thought it was. At first I thought it was a cold, but it lingered for so long. I thought, well, it's the change of seasons and perhaps it's an allergy related type thing. So one night late, uh, my wife and I had been already gone to bed and, um, I wake up coughing and, and I, I needed to set up. And when I did, I grabbed my chest and um, I noticed a lump immediately on my left breast. And for whatever reason, I have no family history of uh, breast cancer, um, no family history of any type of cancer. Mm -hmm. And, but for whatever reason, I just really suspected that I had breast cancer and um uh, so I, I immediately woke up my wife and there's an old saying here in the, in the States that um, says, don't poke the bear. 
Uh, I don't know if that's a it's a colloquialism in, in England or not, but uh, uh, it, it is here. And uh, so it, it was never more true that night than it was when I woke her up. And uh, she said, this better be good. And I said, honey, I found a lump in my breast. She says, oh, my goodness. She said, go back to sleep. She said, you've got breast cancer and I've got prostate cancer. So, we, wow. you know, we joke, we joke about it. Uh, of course, she, thankfully, she didn't have prostate cancer or it would have been a whole new definition of our marriage. That was, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, the times they are changing. So you never know. I mean, <laughs> but um, so anyway, um, so the next day I contacted my physician and followed up with a series of tests. And each test that I had came back, um, that each test that I had came back uh, inconclusive or with abnormalities. And the more tests that I had, the more confirmed that I was uh, to myself that in fact I did have breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And so um, we finally found out uh, about uh, April 14th or 15th, something like that, of 2012, that indeed I did have uh, cancer of the breast. And uh, so my doctor uh, was insistent. It was through the Veterans uh, Affairs uh, facility, and uh, he was insistent that he performed the uh, mastectomy. Um, but he had no facility there at that hospital to do so. Um, but he assured us that he was in the process of, of getting that. And uh, so we kind of drug it out for another six weeks, which I wasn't too happy about, nor was anybody in our family too happy about. Mm-hmm. And um, we finally then went to D.C., which is about an hour and a half away from our home. Um, and we saw uh, an oncologist there and a uh, surgeon, and um, and we had uh, the mastectomy, the, the radical mastectomy in my left breast. And it was discovered then after that that it was stage two, and they had taken some of the lymph nodes there just as a precautionary measure to test those. And I was declared um, cancer-free. And, um, uh, you know... Um, I recuperated. Now, I like to tell everybody that breast cancer saved my life. And the reason I say that is, is because in the preliminary uh, routine test that they were uh, getting me ready for this mastectomy surgery, they discovered that I needed to have open heart surgery too. So as soon as the uh, breast cancer uh, surgery, the the mastectomy was healed enough, uh, three months later, I went in for a, um, a four-way bypass uh, surgery for my heart. And there were complications because of, uh, because of the mastectomy, to be honest. And because of the medicine that I was taking, tamoxifen had driven up my triglycerides to what was defined as industrial strength levels. Um, they had no record of anybody ever having triglyceride levels in the 8200s. And that's where mine, 8,200. So um, quite extraordinary high, extraordinarily high. And uh, I, I myself living with that was an anomaly in and of itself. Uh, but, um, you know, I survived and uh, it's part of my story. Wasn't it true that when you went to the doctor, he, he said that uh, you can't have breast cancer because you're a guy? Right. 
Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, uh, that was the first thing that I, when I went to him initially, uh, he said, Oh, you don't, you don't have breast cancer. He said, guys don't get breast cancer. And, um, and, and that was another reason why I was really, he's no longer my, my physician. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, for the longest time, I got to tell you, um, John, that for the longest time, um, my, my mission um, statement about breast cancer became one um, that I wanted to empower people to know that men get breast cancer too, that men have breasts. Did you know that men have breasts? It's part of our natural anatomy. And, um, and did you know that because of that, we're susceptible to breast cancer? Mm-hmm. And that became a loud mission statement. And it wasn't until sometime later, actually in 2017, that that mission statement changed. And I'll tell you how here whenever we get to that point. Sure. Um, tease. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny that you should say that about like men have breasts too. Because when I was uh, advertising this this show, a guy got in touch with me and went, no, chest cancer. It's right. chest cancer. So, you know, I'm glad that you've said that. And I have met, believe me, I, I, I've traveled. I've had the wonderful benefit of traveling uh, all over the United States, talking to uh, different uh, groups of individuals, mostly women, um, but uh, a select few uh you know, audiences that did have men in it. And, and I've heard from many guys that same thing. Oh, mm-hmm. you mean cancer for men? And no, it is not. It's like they don't want to accept uh, the fact that our anatomy in that respect uh, is a breast. Yeah. Um, it's, it's an anatomical part of our body is a mm-hmm. breast. We have pectoral muscles, you know, yeah. um, and that's certainly different our pectoral muscles develop differently than women. Although some women bodybuilders develop their pectoral muscles as well. So, um, you know, but yeah, it is a common uh, misconception and we're trying to do our best uh, to educate uh, those people um, that, that call it chest cancer, you know? Yeah. Um, And of course, that's one of the reasons why I'm here today to talk to you and your audience uh, is to help educate them about uh, breast cancer in males. And I don't like yeah. to call it male breast cancer uh, because unfortunately, and this is probably something that will take many, many more years of um, study uh, mm-hmm. through the scientific uh, community before we actually start seeing um, uh, therapies and uh, medicines and chemotherapies that are developed primarily or specifically for men. Yeah. But in the meantime, we are, um, you know, we're treated just like our, our female counterparts. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it is an unfortunate aspect. And, you know, and I, and I guess there's enough commonalities in the human bodies um, that we respond similarly. However, um, because our body chemistries are different, you know, yeah. Um, it, it certainly stands to reason that uh, eventually, you know, the, the medical community will catch up and we will have um, m- medical specific uh, opportunities for men with breast cancer. And it, you, say, you say that we shouldn't really call it male breast cancer. 
when advertising this show, I've been calling it male breast cancer because breast cancer is so ingrained in the feminine ideology that that if I say breast cancer, that's what they think of straight away. Right, right. And, and you know, I think it's a point um, that needs... Um, it needs it, it demands exploration mm-hmm. and it demands um education yeah uh and the reason i say that is is because and i'm gonna if i can i'm gonna advance now from 2012 to four years later mm-hmm. um when i was had recurrence uh recurrence occurs men and women about 30 percent of the time yeah. and uh, and so in 2016 i had recurrence and it came back, it was metastatic. Now, what is metastatic? That is stage four. And it simply means that the breast, uh, the cancer cells have mutated outside of the breast region. Um, you don't die from stage one, stage two, or stage three. Stage four metastatic breast cancer is the only cancer that kills you. Right. And you know, that is, uh, uh, again, another misnomer. A lot of people say, well, you know, they had stage two cancer and they died. I can assure you they didn't die from stage two cancer. It might have been a contributing factor in their death. It may have weakened their immune system. It may have done a lot of things, um, but they did not die from stage two uh, breast cancer. Um, and so, you know, again, uh, this is all a matter of uh, proper education, proper awareness, and making sure that our audiences um, hear what we're actually saying instead of saying, well, you need to drink more tomato juice, or have you tried grapefruit, a grapefruit rub, or yeah. whatever the case may be, you know. Um, so from a scientific standpoint, um, you know, th- th- these are, are what uh, the scientific community uh, relates to us, um, for those of us that have really uh, embraced the scientific studies of breast cancer. Mm-hmm. I have really benefited and been very fortunate from that. I took a, a project lead uh, institute class uh, in La Jolla, California, a couple of years ago with the uh, National Breast Cancer uh, Coalition. And uh, one of the things uh, that was really the most exciting thing about that whole educational process. It's an intense, a uh, layman based, but, um, or layman focused, but scientifically based study mm-hmm. of breast cancer and how it, so that you can talk educationally and, and knowledgeably about, uh, breast cancer. And the wonderful thing about it, you have, uh, you had, uh, instructors and, uh, uh, various uh, PhDs uh, that were from uh, MD Anderson and uh, uh, NIH and John Hopkins. And really, I mean, you're talking, uh, you know, some of the great uh, cancer centers in the country uh, that participated. And we actually had uh, presenters from abroad as well, from Germany and uh, from Japan. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's very enlightening. And it's made it very interesting. And it also uh, gives you an education from the standpoint so that you can better speak about uh, what happens in the process and how uh, cancer cells uh, mutate, Mm -hmm. you know. And once you have an understanding of those things, I think it does really lend yourself, uh, or hopefully it does lend yourself to being 
a better communicator with others so that they get a, a better grasp as to what's going on in this uh, terrible disease. And do you think the education needs to extend to medical professionals with you in your case, you know, the doctor didn't believe you had breast cancer because you were a guy. Do you think it was that one doctor that was ignorant or? Well, no, I, I don't, unfortunately. And, and my, my case for this is, uh, for, or the reasoning behind this statement is, is because I've spoken to many people uh, in the uh, medical communities um, that, uh, and this just boggles my mind, but we're totally unaware that men even get breast cancer. Wow. And, um, and so, you know, it's like, really, you have breast cancer? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do, you know? And guess what? It's not just a woman's disease. It's a man's disease, too. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I kind of want to shift gears for a minute, but kind of, mm -hmm. that's a great lead in if opportunity, if you want, if you allow me to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as I said, my focus used to be Hey, did you know men have breast, men get breast cancer? And I shifted that mission statement to a different perspective. And I, in order for me to fully uh, explain to you how I perceive it now and how I present it now, I need to tell you a little bit of the backstory. And in 2017, I was at a conference in Philadelphia there were approximately 500 ladies there and a couple of men, not many. Um, I think there was two or three of us guys that had breast cancer mm -hmm. uh, out of 500. So that's, uh, and, and we were all metastatic, I might add. Um, so um, I, I spoke with one. Um, so I spoke with a lady. Uh, I asked, I was going around doing some interviews on behalf of the Male Breast Cancer Coalition, just uh, filming these interviews, um, kind of really off the cuff, asking questions with people, my newfound friends uh, that I had met. And one of the ladies, um, I asked her, I said, did you know that men get breast cancer? She said, yes, I, I knew that. And I asked her, I said, well, have you ever met anybody? And she said, no, you're the first person, the first man that I've met that has uh, breast cancer. And I said, so what are you planning on doing now as a result of this knowledge and this awareness? And she said, you know, that's a really good question because she said, and this was the, this was the aha moment for me. This is what changed everything. She said, you know, I have two sons. My second son, I was pregnant with him when I became de novo, which is the onset of stage four. From the very beginning, that was her initial diagnosis, de novo, stage four metastatic breast cancer while she was pregnant. And this happens a lot. You see this very frequently. And she said, and I remember the child being born and I was so thrilled that it was a boy because she said, I, I, I thought, oh my goodness, he'll never have to face this. He'll never have to be threatened by the chance of having breast cancer. Wow. And the, I, like I said, this is the aha moment mm -hmm. because she said, now I realize I need to go home and get both of my boys who are now young men checked. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, and, and here's the thing. This is why I, I don't, I no longer just try to focus and talk to men or to talk to women about men. I talk to people and say, this is what's important. We have a little thing called DNA, our genes, genetics. And our genes, while many things are packed, passed on to the X or to the Y chromosomes, our genes genetically don't care about cancer genes and if they're X or Y chromosomes, boy or girl. Mm-hmm. So that said, don't be concerned about your daughters. Be concerned about your children. Yeah. Yeah. wise. Yeah. It's, it's no longer a disease that impacts you, just your daughter or just your granddaughter. But you see, your son, while he may, it may never have manifested in him, he could have the genetic disposition to pass those genes on to your granddaughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or to his son or to your grandson, at which point it would maybe expose itself. So we don't know, but we do know that it is genetic unless you have environmental impacts that also can, are contributing factors sometimes. Mm-hmm. But genetically speaking, X and Y chromosomes don't care. Boys and girls, they don't care about our genes as far as what's in our DNA. And if we have the ability to, for our, uh, these, these tumors in our body to turn on, to switch on and become um, cancerous, if we have that ability, they don't care. They don't yeah. care if you're a boy or a girl. They just want to, they just want to, get in your body and, and create havoc. And so, and that's the reason why my, my mission statement really changed and why now when I talk to ladies and I'd like to talk to ladies about this because ladies will listen, men, we have too much machismo. We like, <laughs> Oh yeah, we got chest cancer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We got chest cancer. <clears throat> you know, that's no, no. The ladies will listen. They'll listen and they'll make that statement and they'll they'll take that statement home. And suddenly they're not concerned about just their daughters. Yeah. Now they're concerned about their children because they understand. Most everybody understands genes and DNA, maybe not the scientific uh, minutia little bit there that that you know makes the difference and what makes something turn on and turn off and you know is the chromosome chain broken or is it unbroken or what uh but these are things that impact of course cancer cells and and oftentimes um manipulate the cancer cells and turn them on is when a chromosome chain is broken could be through a a fall it could be yawning or stretching it's just something that simple yeah um but but you know so uh, these things happen, but if you have the propensity because your grandmother or your grandfather was a carrier of this particular gene, the BRCA1 or a BRCA2, okay, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what sex you are, you know, it knows no boundaries. Yeah. It, 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 is, it is totally unbiased. 
And so it's no longer really, a lot of times they say, well, that's an old man's disease. Old men get that. Yes, I'm 61, but I was 52 at the time. And let me tell you, 52 is not old. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, my, my dad had uh, bowel cancer as well as a lot of other things. And I've had cancer in my family. And to be honest, cancer really scares me. So when when you find out that you have it, how do you how do you cope with that emotionally and and psychologically? Uh, it's a great question, and you know what? It's not one that I ignore at all. Uh, in fact, um, I have been pursuing a degree in psychology so that I can hopefully yeah. aid and help others learn how to cope with the uh, psychological stresses of uh, of that diagnosis. And I have often commented to many groups that I've spoken to that I really personally feel that um, learning how to cope with your diagnosis is as difficult, if not more so, than hearing the initial diagnosis. Because it has a time to saturate your brain and, and, to, and, to, and to really allows you to contemplate. And, and when we do, we're all human. We have a, we, we process things so differently, you know, and, um, and, and so it impacts us each differently. If you have a long, strong family history of cancer, um, like you mentioned, um, it's going to impact you differently. So how do you process it? Um, all I can tell you is how I process it. Um, and, and, uh, I can, I can give you some suggestions, uh, I hope um, that you kind of focus and center yourself on so that um, you can learn how to cope with these things. But the, the manifestation that, um, that our bodies grab hold of, of um, the what ifs in life mm-hmm. can be very debilitating, you know? And uh, so you know, the first thing that I suggest is, well, how do we get rid of the what ifs? And we have to realize the reality of it is that, you know, um, I have a terminal disease. I have a terminal diagnosis. And here I am um, in March of this year, in a little more than a month, I will celebrate six years of being terminal cancer diagnosis. I'm pretty proud of that. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, and I, and I stay upbeat about it. Um, sure. I can get really depressed about it too, because I also am aware that six years, what does that mean? Does that mean I have a year left? Does that mean I have five years left or two years left, or do I have 20 years left? And so what I try to do is refocus when my mind goes in that direction, I try to refocus on the positives in my life. I try to make plans uh, for tomorrow, for next week, uh, for this year, and uh, for years down the road. Um, you know, I just purchased a big piece of farm equipment, um, and and not because uh, I'm planning on dying next month. I'm hoping that I get to get many, many years of use out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, it, you know, you're constantly, uh, for me, I try to refocus my energy on the positives in life and my blessings in life. And I am a very spiritual person. And I think, uh, 
I think that uh, having that spirituality, uh, that faith and belief in God, I think that that um, allows me to maintain that positive focus. It allows me to pray in a way and in a manner uh, that um, allows me to continue to be strong and present in my present body, even though there are uh, many times and many times during the days and weeks, especially after a chemo treatment, which are ongoing always. Um, you know, I, I, I just uh, feel blessed. I feel blessed for each day that I have. And I look forward to those things. And I think that that positive outlook, and it's hard to, it's not, I realize that it's not for everyone, you know, and I understand that. And everybody processes things, uh, you know, so differently. I met a lady that had um, five children all under the age of six. And she announced, we were in a, a breakout session, and she announced to the group that she had prepared her children and told them that she had stage four terminal cancer. And what that meant is that mommy's going to die. And the more I listened to it, the more sad I became, not just for her, but also for her children, because I thought, how many days are they going to come home from school wondering if this is the day that mom dies? Yeah. And so afterwards, I, I kind of talked to her off the side from everyone else. And I said, I said, I, you know, I, I shared with her my concern and she said, well, she said, I just wanted to be realistic with them. And I said, I get that. But I said, your children are so young and they're so impressionable. I said, what if you told them and, and, and you didn't maybe go into all of the details of it, but what if you just told them that said, you know, people don't live forever. We all die. Some die young, some die old. Mommies, daddies, your aunts, your uncles, everybody, brothers and sisters, we all die. It's part of life. Mm -hmm. But today, let's go out and make memories. You know? Yeah. yeah. And it's that positive spin. And she said, you know, I wish I had talked to you beforehand. <laughs> I said, well, guess what? Here's the great thing. You know, you can go back. Kids are very impressionable. And they're very malleable. You know, they, they are... are, are They want your love and they want your, you know, they, they desire attention. So sit down and talk to them and say, you know, maybe I, 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 I don't want to mislead you. You know, everybody's going to die and have that same story with them, but have a different ending. Instead of saying, I don't want you to worry about mommy today, you know, because we're all going to die. Today, let's go out and play on the playground. You know, let's go out and make sandcastles on the beach. Let's do something. Let's make an yeah. apple pie, whatever it is, you know. And I just think that the children, because quite honestly, with um, the medicines and the continual uh, improvements and, and great uh, new strides that have been made in the medical community and immunotherapies and chemotherapies and, you know, even on radiation and things, that there's just been so many great improvements that it is not unheard of for people to live 20, 25 years with a stage four diagnosis. Yeah. At least I'm hoping for that. I'm hoping for more than that. You know, mm -hmm. I'm 61 now, you know, I've been living with this diagnosis for six years and I'm really hoping that I get 
16 or 20, maybe 25 more years, you know? Well, I love, and I think that that's the other thing too, is I think that when you're talking about coping, so many people, they want to bury themselves in the corner and they say, oh, I've got a stage four diagnosis. I'm, I'm dying. Well, yes, but you were dying yesterday too, before you got that diagnosis. That's a reality. So you got to be yeah, grounded true. in reality. You know, you have to be grounded in reality. And a lot of people say, well, you look through everything with rose colored glasses. I said, no, I try to look through things with the realism, the realistic views that say, hey, you know what? We are all dying from the minute we're born. You know, yeah. so how are we going to live? Because we are not remembered when we die, how we died. We are remembered for the life that we live. That is, uh, yeah, that's very, very moving and very true as well. I mean, when I went through my trauma, which uh, wasn't cancer, but it was uh, domestic violence, I turned to um, Hinduism and spirituality to, to get me through. And it did. I still continue to this day. Uh, Great. It, it helps me a lot. And I do think that that positive mental attitude if, if going forward and living for the moment, living for today, I do think that's uh, very beneficial, very beneficial. Yeah, I, I can't um, stress how valuable the realization is that our life has value today. We may be just an empty body, a soulless body tomorrow. We may be dead tomorrow, mm -hmm. but today we have life. We're we're still, we're still sucking oxygen. Yeah. We still have the ability to make decisions, good and bad, and 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 memories. That's that's a fantastic thing right there. Making those great memories with our children, our grandchildren, our loved ones, our families, our best friends. You know, that's the thing that that counts more than anything. Not the mm -hmm. fact that you have some stupid diagnosis. <laughs> yes, of course that's important, and of course I'm not saying ignore it. I'm not su suggesting for one minute that you no longer, you know, do or, or abide by your doctor's wishes or anything like that. But I am suggesting that you have to get your mental acumens in order. You have to get your mental um, ability to process the value of life, of the value of living. Yeah. And, and once you realize how important that is, that and and make plans to live make plans to enjoy life mm -hmm. what happens is those negative thoughts get pushed back and not that they're going to disappear because you can always bring them right up to the front you can always bring them right up to the surface that's an easy thing depression is so easy to bring right there you know and it's a yeah. challenge to come back but once you start making plans once you start living life, you know, and loving your, the life you're living, I mean, I think it just puts everything into a totally different perspective. And it just makes dealing with these formidable, this formidable disease, you know, it, it makes it easier to live with. I am not a negative person. I can be a negative person. Mm -hmm. but I am not a negative person. Yeah. I could tell that. <laughs> um, how, 
we've seen how it Im- impacted you and we've seen how brave you were and how positive you are. How did it impact your family when, when they found out? Yeah. Uh, each person handles things so differently. And there is a um, almost like a learning curve, I think, that happens uh, when we get uh, this diagnosis. For my wife, um, she was with me, but right beside of me when we got the diagnosis. And um, it's the first time in almost 40 years that I've known her that um, she crumbled, mm-hmm. you know? It was the first time she truly, she fell to her knees. And, and the first words out of her mouth were, how do we ever plan anything today? And immediately, immediately, I said, what did we do yesterday? I said, yeah, we got terrible news today, but guess what? We're still here. Now, how are we going to live with it? How, what are we going to do to make it the best that it can be? Mm-hmm. And, and so it was a slow process. And there are times for her and for me, like I said, Depression can creep in, you know. I'm not saying that I live a perfect life because that I'll be the first one to admit that I don't. But we we lean on each other, you know. We have the benefit of doing that, and we look to each other for strength, and we look to God for strength, and we, uh, you know, we incorporate that in our prayers. Um, for I have a sister um, who, for the longest time. I think was kind of in denial about it. Um, and I think my mom and my, 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 my parents, my, my mother and father, both, I think that they, uh, it, it wasn't that they didn't want to accept it, but they don't want, you know, no parent wants to hear that kind of news. Yeah. And so I think it's just difficult for them to process, but now at this point, um, Uh, They're both 84 years old, and I see um, kind of a change in the the perspective, in the way that they deal with uh, me and my disease. And and what I'm talking about there primarily is uh, we would say, well, you know, I had to have chemo today, and I'm really tired. Oh, okay, well, can you still do this? You know, they would ask, well, do you mind stopping here or getting this or whatever? And but now. Um, they realize that it, it really plays on my body, mm-hmm. uh, that it really impacts me, you know, in a debilitating way. And, uh, and they're more understanding, but mm-hmm. it's been a real process for them to get to that. And, uh, you know, I think it's, um, it's a shock. It's a shock to everyone's yeah. system to hear that kind of news. You know, it's, uh, it's terrible. Nobody's going to say, you mean I got cancer? Great. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know anybody that's going to say that. Yeah. You know, but, but uh, you can still laugh about it. You can still, I mean, there's some things you shouldn't laugh about in life. You know, somebody on their deathbed, probably not. You know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, but I try to find humor every day yeah you know and i try to share that with 
my friends and family and everybody. You know, I, I, I want to educate people um, about this disease. Mm-hmm. I want people to enjoy my company. And if I'm a Debbie Downer or a Donnie Downer or whatever, I can't, I can't expect people to walk away saying, man, I really liked him. Cause they're going to be like, man, what a drag, yeah. you know? Um, and, and I, and like I said, I think so much of it, I carry with, uh, because of my faith. Yeah. And how do we raise more awareness and more support for male victims of, of this disease? Well, like I said, I think the best thing to do is to, first off, call it people's. It's not, it's not a a woman's disease. It's not a male, you know, it's not male breast cancer. It's not a a woman's disease. And there are a lot of women that want to have ownership to it. Mm -hmm. They do not want even to have a man suggest that they know what they're going through. And honestly, from a male perspective, we don't know because we're not a female. Yeah. You know, so I understand that. I get it. But um, uh, but from the uh, so, uh, so anyway the so anyway um, the uh, I think that once you realize that that it's a disease that can be passed on genetically, I think that that realization um, makes the conversation a little different. And so because of that, I think that it's important for us to focus our conversation, as I said earlier, with the women, because they'll listen. Yeah. And and, uh, they will come to the realization that, hey, it's not just, it's just not a woman's disease. It, It affects people. So I think it's just a matter of, of uh, conversation and uh, inclusiveness, you know, that we continue to um, talk about genetics. Uh, environmental impacts, uh, they can certainly have an, you know, th- th- there are those that are environmentally, uh, and that's probably where my cancer uh, developed from was my uh, environment from my military exposure. Mm-hmm. You know, we're seeing a great number of male um, cancer patients that responded to the 9-11 uh, disaster in New York. And, you know, so the respondents to that, uh, the toxins that were in the, in the air and things, and we think, and this is a confusing issue for me, to be honest, because when you think about that, you think, well, if they're inhaling these things, why didn't they get uh, brain cancer? Why didn't they get... Uh, lung cancer. Why do they get breast cancer? And it's a it's an incredible uh, thing to ponder because nobody knows. I mean, if we knew why exposure to certain environments create this, maybe we would have a better insight, you know. But uh, we don't we don't know uh, the uh, influences and the impacts of of our environments and how they. Uh, how they cause this disease to be manifested. 
So it's just, um, you know, it's kind of crazy. Do you, do you know if there's any charities or helplines out there for, for men going through this? Well, there is the uh, Male Breast Cancer Coalition, uh, and it's probably the largest in the world, um, as far as that goes, that uh, allows for allows for that um, for, for men to look to uh, for support, for them to be able to talk to uh, other guys um, and, and, you know, to be connected with uh, a support group is a fantastic thing mm -hmm. and it's a necessary thing. It's part of that equation that is needed uh, to learn how to cope. Um, your family is wonderful. Your friends are wonderful, but they're very biased yeah. in so much. They love you so much that they don't want to uh, attribute to any more psychological pain, you know, um, and they're not, let's face it, they've not necessarily been through this. So they're not going to have the knowledge mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that the support group has. Um, and, and there is that, uh, that bond that exists uh, with others when, when uh, you can talk to someone and get that camaraderie mm -hmm. uh, because of experiences, you know. So I, I do think that it's essential. A lot of the hospitals um, have uh, support groups for uh, cancer patients. Um, the VA hospital in Washington, D.C., does not have a support group for breast cancer patients. They have a support group for cancer patients. And I would, yeah. uh, you know, so there is, lies the difference. I've actually heard uh, where some organizations, national worldwide organizations have actually uh, not wanted to have uh, members of their group exposed to uh, breast cancer patients that are metastatic because that's, you know, that, that has the tendency to draw people down. And I think that's a ridiculous, bogus, yeah. bullcrap idea and concept. We're all there to help uplift people. Yeah, and you know, we should all learn how to deal with the reality of our disease. Mm -hmm. And uh, so ignoring it or, uh, or calling the herd, so to speak, um, to say, well, you're not, uh, you're not part of the same, uh, you don't meet the criteria or what have you. Yes, if you have cancer, and it doesn't matter if you're stage one or stage four, if you have cancer, you should be able to be, participate in a group yeah. and talk about it, you know, because I think that even uh, from my experience, I belong to the uh, National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship which is based out of Washington, DC. And it focuses on cancers of all types. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, even though, um, you know, in, a, in any given room, we may, we may have, uh, let's say out of a, a population of uh, 80 people in a room, uh, there might be uh, 12 or 15 people that have breast cancer, three or four that are pancreatic, two or three that are lung cancer. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. And so, but, but we all, all of our uh, experiences lend, um, they lend opportunities for us to learn about how to cope. And like I said, even though 
Uh, we're not necessarily in a support group to find the cure. We're not in a support group uh, to find, you know, what kind of uh, tomato rub to put on our right pinky or something like that. You know, um, we are in a support group for that mental help um, to learn how to cope. Yeah. And the coping process, um, it, it varies so much from one individual to the next. Mm-hmm. Um, what works for one may never work for somebody else, but uh, we're individuals. You know, we're each similar in so many ways, but we're each individuals. And so we have to kind of pick and choose and figure out works, what works best for us. But I'm telling you, and I'm telling your audience right now, Get into a support group. If you don't have one, um, find one. Uh, there's, there are those out there. Um, if, if you want something gender specific, like the Male Breast Cancer Coalition, um, you know, contact them. Um, but uh, th- there are support groups in the hospitals, um, in, uh, in, in your community that exist. Um, and you know, and, and bang on the door and tell them that, yes, I want to participate. My cancer may not be the same, but I want to participate because you know what? You will help someone else in that group and they will help you. Yeah. Yeah. Wise words again. And how, how important is it for men to check themselves and how do men check themselves for, for breast cancer? It's honestly so simple. The best thing to do is in the shower, you know, Um, you know, there was this big push uh, back in the eighties for men to check their testicular for testicular cancer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, and it's, and it's basically the same thing. You just rub the area, the breast area, you know, and uh, I'll, I'll use one that actually has a breast since I was looking at my left breast and now I'm on my right, but you just, it's pretty basic, you know, start under your arm here, kind of work your way around and look for a lump, mm-hmm. you know, look for a discharge or an inverted nipple um, or a deformed nipple, any kind of abnormalities that you see in your body uh, in that area. Um, yeah. I mean, regardless of how insignificant and how small they may appear to you, um, it's really worth having it checked out. and. More importantly, <laughs> it, it seems like I shouldn't even have to say this, but I'm going to. But more importantly, don't just have confirmation that, you're, that it is, in fact, cancer. Do something about it. I've, I've met so many guys, and they're like, yeah, I don't want to mess with it. But why did you bother then finding out what it was? Yeah. You know, do something about it. It's not just because it's breast cancer doesn't mean, like I said, stage one, two, and three are not going to kill you. Yeah, it might be mm-hmm. a pain in the neck or a pain in the chest to go through. But the reality is, is until it's manifested, until it's metastasized outside of the breast area, till it's grown outside. For me, I have my cancer metastasized into both lungs and into my bones. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a fight every day. It's not one that I put boxing gloves on and and bowed it out. 
you know, but it's, yeah. it's a, it's a mental fight. It's that coping mechanism, learning how to make it as strong as it can be, you know, and, and as positive as it can be. And I, I hate to go, keep going back to that. And I know I sound like a broken record, but the reality is so true. Yeah. Make, make that coping learn to deal with it learn to cope with it and learn to live your life because once you do that you're not even gonna think about those other things they're not they're gonna be little spots in the day when i first got diagnosed i said okay i'm not gonna think about this terrible disease more than two three thousand times a day (laughs) then i got diagnosed with the recurrence and I said, okay, I might go up as maybe as far as 12 or 15,000 times a day. And I think in both cases, I blow it completely out of the water. But um, it's a fleeting moment, you know? Yeah. And it kind of strengthens me. And I know that's kind of weird, but it, you know, doing shows like, like yours and, and talking to audiences, and, and really being an advocate, going to Congress and talking to Congress and going to medical groups and learning about this and, and talking to medical groups about it and my experiences. And it almost in some strange way validates it. Yeah. It's crazy. And I know that that's a crazy statement to make. I know that that's like, okay all all the people that are listening now just said well okay this guy's a total lunatic you know i don't think any, I, not one person would think that <laughs> but i think it's i think it's just um like i said i think in some strange way it kind of it kind of strengthens me it kind of makes yeah. me stronger as an advocate it makes me better as a person and i and i feel like my life is more full because i know that i'm helping others I know that somewhere, something I've said today, probably not much of what I said today, but, <laughs> but, but something that I've said today, at least one thing, if one thing helps one person, yeah. you know, man, that's, that's crazy. That just makes me feel wonderful. Yeah. And I, I had a friend of mine who's, who was in the service with me. He lives in California, the other coast, you know, and, um, he called me up and he said, I, I just wanted to let you know, I, he said, uh, I'm on my way home from the hospital. And I said, what, what's going on? He said, well, I found a lump in my breast. And I said, oh, no, I was expecting the worst. He said, no, he said, it's good. He said, it, it was just a little cyst. He said, it's nothing to worry about. But he said, it's because of you that I went and got checked. And so there's that validation. Yeah. yeah. There's the thing that, you know, if I can have that impact on a friend or somebody I don't know, it doesn't matter to me as long as I'm having that impact, as long as I'm making some kind of a difference. And, you know, that's, that's the wonderful thing about advocacy work. And that's the wonderful thing about doing uh, these type of shows. And, you know, uh, I, I take every opportunity I get to, to speak about these things because <laughs> I think it's so valuable. You know, yeah, and it, definitely. you know, in life, 
and I, I'm going to sound like a, a really old man now. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to give you my words of wisdom, but in life we get three gifts. I, I believe we get three gifts. We get to be born and we get to live our life, but hopefully we live it in a good way so that when we die, we have a wonderful death and experience. But in the life that we live, there is something that we have as human beings that no other species that I know of has. And that is our ability to share information, our ability to share love, our ability to, <clears throat> our ability to share knowledge and wisdom and history. And so it's kind of a tenant. It's kind of a mandate that we do this. We do it obviously as parents and as teachers and as educators and, but we should just do it because we all benefit from it. Every time we share information, every time we love one another, it just makes life so much better. It makes it so much easier to live. And, and if I could be remembered for something when I die, I would really like it that people say, man, he, he knew how to live life, you know, and he shared that with everybody. And uh, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Well, on that very, very positive note, I want to thank you for your bravery talking today and you are a massive inspiration and um, I'm honored to speak to you. John, thank you. You have honored me by being on your show. I, I am, um, I'm humbled by the opportunities that I get in life to, to share this. And so thank you. And I hope, um, <coughs> I hope that if anybody, you know, wants to send me questions or contact me, um, I'll give, I'll, I'll share my email address with, with those. If you, if you would like, yeah, yeah. it's real simple. It's Kirby K I R B Y Lewis L E W I S four nine at gmail.com. And, uh, so I'll be, you know, I would be more than happy and, and very honored, uh, to, uh, to try to respond in any way I can. Don't, mm -hmm. don't send me porn and don't, <laughs> unless it's really good porn. Um, <laughs> don't, don't send me porn and don't tell me how I, I just inherited uh, $10 billion from a, <laughs> somebody in some other country. And, uh, and there's one other thing. Oh, and I don't need, I, I'm so wealthy already. I don't need any, I don't need to know how to, to get rich. <laughs> so I have a very, I have a very rich life and I don't need any more, uh, any, anybody else telling me how to do that. But, but other than that, please yeah, address your questions appropriately. And I'll, I'll put your email in the, uh, in the description of this video when it goes to YouTube. Very good. Very good. Thank be, you, John. Thank you this so much. And I've, I've looked forward to it. Thank you. Good. You take care. Thanks. And keep living the life, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you as well. Try to try to get those um, those. I mean, they're they're insidious, hideous, little mean, aggravated little gremlin thoughts that get into our minds that make us 
focus on the negatives of life. Yeah. So try to eradicate them with positive energy, you know? Definitely. Awesome. Awesome. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.